Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You're listening to Intuit from Vulture and New York Magazine. I'm Sam Sanders. This episode, AI in Hollywood. You may have heard by now that the use of artificial intelligence in TV and movies, it's a big issue in the ongoing writer's strike and actor's strike in Hollywood. Actors and writers are saying, these studio execs, they're going to use AI and take our jobs. We will not be having our jobs taken away and giving to robots. AI will start writing scripts. AI will be used to generate fake on-screen actors. And the execs are saying, well, don't worry. Trust us. Which, would you? Anywho, in the midst of all that, I want to dig into this episode, how AI works in Hollywood right now. Truth of the matter is, it is used in more places than you think. It already touches a ton of stuff you already watch, and it's probably here to stay. And so AI is going to require a conversation that sees AI as not a hero and not a villain, but maybe just a tool. With that, let's get into it. I'm going to start with someone who uses AI in his creative work all the time. Uh, tell me and our listeners what you and your company do. Uh, we do digital veils for at-risk subjects in documentary films. We do AI face replacements. That's this. That's a simple one-liner. This is Ryan Laney. I'm visual effects supervisor at Tias Media. I bet most of our listeners don't really know how AI works. I know I do not. Can you describe to me in words a first grader would understand how the AI was helping you do that work? Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, well, I don't know. First grader. Um, <laughs> let me think. Fifth, eighth, anything, you know, <laughs> some uh, kind of grade level. No, we'll in do. simple terms, well, maybe I could talk about one of the traditional ways yeah. of doing a face yeah. replacement and then yeah. tell you how it compares to that. Okay. Okay. So I worked on a film called Ant-Man several years ago. The Ant-Man of Paul Rudd fame. Yeah, the original, the, the first one in the okay. series. Yeah. Scott, I need you to be the Ant-Man. So in that movie, there's... Uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Scott Lane is being uh, trained by Hope. She knows her stuff, and Paul Rudd's character doesn't. And so there's a montage to show she's getting him up to speed. In other words, you have to know how to punch. I was in prison for three years. I know how to punch. Show me. And a lot of it's of them in the dojo, and she's just beating on him, which is hilarious. Mm. That's how you punch. So as good as actors are with telling a story through facial expressions and emoting on screen, stunt performers are as good at performing with their bodies. And so they shoot the action with the stunt performers, and then they'll have the actors come in, the, the primary actors, and they'll kind of pantomime through the same motions. So you get 
their bodies and the same kind of lighting and the same kind of poses. And then the visual effects artist will go in and kind of select the frames that look like they're in the same orientation and then stick those onto the stunt performer. So there's a person going through and doing that themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so selecting those frames, it's a laborious process. How long would it take to do, like, all right, to do a minute of that face swapping you're talking about? Like a minute of the Ant-Man face I, you, it doesn't. It doesn't even count in minutes. It usually counts in seconds. Like, it is Wait, hard. Wait, really? It, it's, yeah, yeah. That whole Ant-Man montage, which I couldn't tell you how many seconds there were of face replacement in that whole thing, but not many, not many. And the whole thing took weeks. So that's the old, old way of face replacement. Mm -hmm. And that is Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park, 1993, was the first place to do this. And the way I heard the story was, you know, stunt doubles usually just look away from camera and they're like, why don't you just try one where you look in the camera and we'll see if we can do anything with it. So um, so that was the invention of this sort of digital face replacement. But as Ryan mentioned already, the bulk of his work these days is for documentaries. It all began with the 2020 documentary, Welcome to Chechnya. Filmmaker David France went to Russia and filmed LGBTQ activists who were helping others escape persecution. He'd shot for a year, and he posted for a year, and he had this film, and he couldn't show it anywhere because showing it would put these young people mm-hmm. at risk. Mm-hmm. And they came to us to, for, they wanted to do something like a scanner darkly, like a, a rotoscoping effect over the top. Does it see into me? Clearly. Or darkly? Rotoscoping is an animation technique that traces over live action. They used it in the movie A Scanner Darkly, that cartoon-looking movie with Keanu Reeves. Or you might recall the music video for AHA's Take On Me. It gives this, like, sketchbook effect. So they wanted to cartoonify the individuals who couldn't be seen on camera. Uh, Mm -hmm. And what we realized very quickly was that this didn't actually hide their identities. It actually made caricatures of them in in, in a way more identifiable. Just a cartoon version of their face. It's a cartoon of them. You can still tell who they are. Yeah. And if you've been down to the boardwalk, you know that cartoon versions of people sometimes look, you know, look a lot like them. So Ryan went back to the same face-swapping trick he used in Ant-Man where he'd transfer the actor's face onto the stunt double's body. But for this, the documentary team found volunteers in New York who were willing to have their faces imposed on the activists' faces. That way their faces remained hidden, and they stayed safe from Russian authorities. And all of that would have been really, really hard to do without the help of AI. Uh, well, impossible otherwise. Uh, just Impossible? Explain. Um... The number of frames, the number of minutes, you know, it's an hour, it's an hour, basically it was more visual effects than were in the Matrix. The say, It was actually the same number of shots, but the shots were longer. Um, even at minimum wage, you 
you couldn't have, we would still be working on it. So the, 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 that is one of the things when people talk about machine learning or AI, one of the things is this ability to look at a lot of data and see patterns. Or the ability to look at a lot of data and find correlations between different types of data. Mm-hmm. I can parse, you know, 100,000 images in, in a minute where it would take, just for me to look at every frame would take hours. So yeah. the, the door that it opened up was it let us use a visual effects technique for directors who would never have had access to it. It led us to do 400 shots in a documentary film with a documentary budget to protect 24 people with over an hour of footage. So you're talking about the work you're doing with AI that is literally helping queer people protect their lives, which might be in danger if they're identified in the course of this you know, documentary. I think anyone hearing you describe this work would say, oh, that's good work. Glad someone's doing it. Um, You're also hearing what I'm hearing from striking writers and actors, and you're hearing what they're saying about AI, and they're saying it's no good for the industry. Um, How do you feel about what you're hearing them say? Yeah, no, uh, it is is such an interesting point in time. This is a, a moment of change in the world. Our future is going to look as different as you know before and after the internet, before and after the iPhone, before and after the computer, right? So this is another sort of leap forward. And in 20 years, people are going to wonder how the humans ever got along without AI. You know, my first sort of historical perspective on new technologies is that there are always concerns about how the, those new technologies will negatively impact the world. And there's always, you know, people that are say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. It's going to make everybody's life wonderful. And I don't think that's correct either. But I do think it is going to cause change. And and accepting that this, the momentum is there and this thing is going to happen and we need to figure out how to merge it into our lives in a responsible way versus just saying it can't exist because it's going to exist. So it's just, I think that a lot of people not knowing much about it is probably hurting the conversation because there's a lot of things being said that are I'm having a hard time connecting with. <laughs> Wait, tell me more so, about that. What is the thing that you're hearing being said that you're having a hard time connect with? Give me an example. You know, I'll, I'll, I, if I can relate it to something in a neighboring field. And, and I read an article just a couple days ago about this Barbenheimer weekend. And the lead-in was something like, it's exactly as they would have done it in 1910. As speaking of filmmaking for Barbie, hmm. and the hmm. the intro pick was this Margot and Ryan in the pink Corvette. Closer, in the frame that they use at the head of this article, which sort of bashes on CGI, you've got what appears well, it's a, absolutely a digital camera. It appears to be on a motion control head. It's on a green screen or a blue screen. And, you know, in 1910, they didn't have women directors. So um, the only thing in the frame that appears to be <laughs> from 1910 is the Apple box. <laughs> so there's this, this narrative going around right now that CGI is bad and the audience has had it with CG and they don't want to see CG anymore. And 
I, I just, I, sure, there's always, there's bad films and there's bad acting that could be better rehearsed and there's direction that could be, you know, and there's editing. And there's, like, it doesn't matter what trade there is in filmmaking. I don't think it helps anybody to point to this other group and say they're bad. Thanks again to visual effects supervisor Ryan Laney. After the break, we'll hear from someone who studies AI and film. And we'll talk about why all this chatter about AI feels so threatening to writers and actors. And how any resolution to this standoff is going to take some more honest communication from the studios. All right, stay with us. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So Ryan Laney, who we just heard from, he uses AI for a very specific thing, on-screen face replacement. But that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to AI in Hollywood. It's kind of everywhere. There's been some very prominent uses of AI, um, for example, in Star Wars films, in Marvel films. You're much more of a Thanos. To construct the face of the character Thanos um, in Marvel's Infinity War film with the actor Josh Brolin. With all six stones, I could simply snap my fingers. They would all cease to exist. I call that mercy. I called up Josh Glick to talk more about this. Hi. Hi. Give me one second. Okay. He up. teaches film and electronic arts at Bard College. I mean, it's certainly a, a, a hot topic, and it brings a number of my interests together. Josh says AI is also used a lot to de-age the faces of actors we love. We've seen some prominent uses of this um, in mainstream Hollywood film. Have you seen the new Mission Impossible? I I've they got Tom Cruise looking 42. It's amazing. Tom, Tom Cruise, they have, you know, in the new Indiana Jones, um, Indiana Jones 5, Dial of Destiny. Dr. Jones, get him. They're winding the clock back on, uh, you know, Indiana Jones as a character. Sometimes, AI is even used to bring people back from the dead. Seriously. 
also issues of uh, what's called synthetic resurrection. Like Paul Walker's character in Fast and the Furious. Yeah, exactly. Hey, there's too many of them. We're not going to make it. You're right. We are. You are. No, I'm not leaving you. Now you stick. Or in the case of late night TV, AI is used for language translation. And then there's a bunch of stuff that happens with AI in post-production. Um, to separate objects from their backgrounds, to edit out excess sounds and create a, a smoother, more streamlined kind of soundtrack to take out a dirt or warp or flicker effect in, say, a film's restoration of, you know, archiving in ways that might not be, say, super visible, but are nonetheless becoming more and more part of uh, the kind of craft toolbox for how films get made. So it's kind of hard to make a blanket statement about whether AI should be used in Hollywood or whether it shouldn't, because it's already being used all the time. I talked more with Josh Glick about how all these debates over how AI gets used in the entertainment industry sort of miss this fundamental truth. So I want to talk a little more about where AI is headed and what future uses might be in the works. But I do have to ask, just as someone who watches this stuff and is really curious about the narrative around AI right now, given these strikes, if AI is already so widespread in Hollywood, why is so much of the narrative from striking writers and striking actors, why does it set AI up as this looming threat that is down the road but can still be avoided and not a thing that's already kind of here? Right. I mean, this is a great question, you know, and I think it's really important to look at the context of these strikes, to look at what they're striking for, and to understand just how fast AI is changing and a lot of uncertainty about its present and future. Mm. So, you know, on the one hand, we have studios that are looking to be profitable right now in terms of their platforms. They're coming out of COVID, a slow box office. They're looking for new ways to, to monetize, getting people back to theaters to create new kinds of productions, looking at technology as, as one way to aid in that effort. At the same time, actors and writers are aware of the fast rate of change and anxious about its potential future uses. Um, you know, writers and actors are also acutely aware of the raw end of the deal that they've received in some of the past shifts, say, to streaming, right, in their um, ability to, you know, to earn less and less from residuals, from shorter production cycles. Yeah. And, there's, and there's an attempt really to take a stand to ensure that they are um, being able to exercise, you know, maximum editorial control over their work. What that looks like for actors and writers is a little bit different. But nonetheless, there is real energy to not concede to something where, the imagined uses of AI are things that are essentially still being settled. There's a lot of unknowns. And some of the threats are being widely discussed. And Hollywood hasn't done too good of a job. And I'm talking about, you know, Studio Hollywood and studio heads dispelling perhaps some of these rumors or imagined scenarios, right? For example, yeah. the idea that one's performance could be scanned for a single day and and their likeness and their performance can be stored as, as digital data that could be used later in that film. There was also some debate about whether that performance and that data could be used to simulate future performances in other films totally. or TV shows or commercials. And actors wanting to have control over how their likeness is used and under what circumstances and also 
receiving compensation for that. Let's talk about that in detail. You know, so you've laid out the ways AI is already used. But right now what's happening with these strikes, it seems as if actors and writers are talking about the ways they don't want AI to be used in the future. Can mm -hmm. we break down what they're concerned about? And tell me if I'm wrong. It seems as if the writers are saying, we don't want AI to start writing scripts and replace us. And it seems as if actors are saying, we don't want these studios to get us in a studio for one day, use AI to create our image and likeness, and then use that AI version of us in perpetuity. Are those the big concerns from writers and actors about AI right now with these strikes? Yeah, those are some of the central concerns. And I should say that it's not like they are opposed to AI being used in every circumstance going forward. They want some sort of ban on all AI technology, and that's the position they're taking. It's really a question of how it's used and how it's used in relation to their creative labor. So for the example of the writers that you were mentioning, they don't want AI to assume the role of author on a project, right? Mm. So that a studio or studio head, a producer could use ChatGPT to generate some kind of script or a treatment and say to bring a writer in at the very end to do some script doctoring and put some finishing touches on a project in its latter stages, right? That a human author needs to be tied to the production, to the script writing at every stage in development. And AI could be used as a tool, just like there are a number of tools out there. For the yeah. actors, it's less about maybe AI being used as a kind of tool and more about the degree of control that they would have over their likeness, whether that likeness might be used within the context of a single production under different circumstances or in um, later productions, and also to be compensated for that, right? So they don't go in once, get scanned, and then have... Well, um, and like, yeah. yeah, and then have it used forever. This mm -hmm. is a thing where it's like uh, the studios floated this out a few weeks ago. They basically were offering a flat rate to have the actors come in and give their AI likeness, and then uh, the studios are free to use it forever. Is that what the studios are saying they want right now? They've come back, you know, in response to that kind of summary of what they were saying to say, look, it wouldn't necessarily be forever. It would just be in the context of one production. But, but, you know, this, but can they be yeah. trusted on that? Yeah, they but, already exactly, seem to not exactly. be paying writers and actors enough right now before AI is using their right. likeness, right? Right. So this debate is just inviting all of these possibilities for how the likeness of an individual might be used as an extra in a crowd sequence in the context of a adjacent production. That once they have that data, once they have somebody's digital likeness. The incentive to be able to use it in all of these different scenarios sounds to actors, to other creative labor as a way of diminishing the role of that individual and of that kind of yeah. live action talent. Well, and on the on the merits of like fair compensation mm -hmm. to actors, period, I think a lot of these actors and writers don't see the studios as reliable narrators in this. Right. They don't trust them. Right, because they're they're aware of what's happened in the shifts to streaming, right? That something yeah. gets watched over and over on Netflix. Writers, actors have for the past 10 years, not only has it been the case where they haven't received financial compensation for those repeat viewings, the viewings of films and television shows all over the world in which they've contributed to, but also they don't even know 
a lot of the data concerning where is a film being watched? Don't know how if the show's getting watched. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The access to that data ha- has been very limited. Studios have been very opaque. The studios have put a great premium on that data as one of their primary assets. And so there's a lot of distrust. And so far, in terms of these strikes, studio heads have not done a good job at all of, of trying to build back that trust or inviting people back to the conversation in a way that would sound inviting to writers, actors, and other creative labor in the industry. So I hear you saying that these striking actors and writers are striking for not just a reason, but good reason. But is there anything that you've heard from these big studios about AI, about all these issues we were speaking of that has you saying, well, they got a point. They got a point. Anything? Yeah. I I mean, I think they have a point in that there are a lot of hyped narratives about AI, right? There's a lot of utopia, dystopia, that AI under any circumstance is a kind of existential threat to filmmaking as as we've known it. I think we have a lot of anxiety and fear that sort of get shaped into very grand narratives of whether a technology is good or bad. And I think looking at AI not as good or bad, um, but as a set of technologies that can be applied in different ways, that can have different kinds of uses, some of them quite creative, um, and many for malicious purposes or just to generate or streamline profits. Um, And, you know, we've seen AI, I mean, not just visually on screen in terms of the construction of characters and the ability to generate visual effects, but also in the kinds of Uh, distribution platforms that many of these companies have used. You know, a company like Netflix is a prime... The algo for Netflix is AI. It's figuring out what you want to watch through AI, right? Exactly. A prime example of looking at large amounts of data to try to micro-target particular films to particular individuals, giving to you what it thinks you might want, you should want. Um, And that ability to sort of analyze large amounts of data and to create a distribution platform that is more micro-targeted, you know, it is the use of AI, which we have seen now for over 10 years in terms of what these emerging platforms have been doing. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L. V-A-N-29.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You know, when issues of AI are talked about in regards to Hollywood and these strikes, it seems as if one side is firmly on one side of this thing and the other side's firmly on the other side of this thing. But I wonder, are there any creators, actors, writers, producers who are secretly excited about the potential of AI but just can't say it out loud? Do you talk to folks in the industry on the creative side who are actually kind of more okay with AI than the public narrative might make it seem? I mean, there are actors actresses that are very public about the positivity concerning particular uses or applications of AI. You know, Harrison Ford has come out and said that he not only is okay with the de-aging process that was used in the most recent Indiana Jones, but he thought it was skillfully done. It, he thought it sort of enhanced or expanded the kind of star that he could be, the kind of story that could be told. At the same time, yeah. there are people say, working in post-production or editing that use AI... Um, already. Yeah, already, as, as part of their normal workflow, as part of a way to find footage or to use, as I mentioned, AI in the case of, say, preservation, restoration, archival work, always done under human supervision. But in these ways in which AI isn't necessarily so visibly seen on screen, but is directly important to the kind of workflow for a lot of craft labor in Hollywood. It seems as if both sides are not near some kind of deal. But even if they were getting close, has anyone figured out how to compensate this new AI reality yet? I'm thinking specifically about actors and their AI likenesses Mm. being used perhaps in perpetuity. How do you figure out the compensation scheme for that, especially if the digital likeness of some of these AI creations of characters and actors is going to be based on already existing bodies of work in which the deals were signed 20 or 10 years ago. Right. I think for some of the big-name talent, A-list stars will be able to craft bespoke deals and arrangements for how a likeness might be used, under what circumstances, whether it's for commercials to sell products, whether it's in the context, say, of, of de-aging or doing different stunts or performing in you know, other kinds of productions where they will have a degree of control and it will be a, a kind of collaboration. A lot of the real threat is more for actors that are playing bit parts, that are playing these lesser roles in films where you know, the pressure to get a, a digital scan you know, of their likeness that can be used is something that might be leveraged as a kind of do this or else, right? I mean, do this or else you're not going to have a part in this film or you're not going to be sort of granted entry into this production. You know, there hasn't, haven't been that many scenarios of what compensation could look like, but it would have to be, you know, they would, you know, receive some amount of the proceeds based on 
the instance of performance that they were giving in a project going forward, something of a kind of variant off of the residuals model, and then also working out what creative control might look like, right? And to what extent might they get a say in that simulation? In what cases might they not? Um, and we're just pretty far away from even those kinds of conversations at the moment. I mean, as for writers, I mean, I think it's the kind of relegation of AI as a kind of tool and then being able to you know, benefit from that tool as they are able to assume the role of author um, on a production and ensuring that as long as they get to hold that position and receive the compensation that comes to them, the flexibility of AI and how it could be used as, as a tool for them, you know, something that could be definitely worked out. You know, our conversation is very much about the conversation around AI in regards to these current strikes. But set the strike aside, just looking 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road of life with AI in Hollywood, who were the big winners and who were the big losers? Mm. The individuals that are able to integrate a lot of these AI technologies into, say, visual effects work in terms of being able to imagine different kinds of characters by bringing human performance together with digital effects and the use of you know, AI-enabled technology will certainly be big winners in the sense of these kinds of effects will only take on greater prominence in blockbuster cinema, in big franchise cinema, where, whether we're talking about Star Wars or MCU productions. So I think the visual effects fields will, I think, continue to use AI in past eras for blockbusters, you know, thinking even in the digital era in the 1990s and beyond, you'd have a couple hundred moments in a film where they would receive a special effects treatment, but that uh, amount of scenes is really escalating at, a, at an exponential rate. And so I think, again, visual effects community will be one area of labor to really benefit. Um, directors that are able to use things like synthetic resurrection, de-aging, not just as a gimmick or as a spectacle or doing it because they can, but doing it in a way that supports um, a really innovative story, right? A, a story where there's really great need and reason to incorporate that technology. Could be in some kind of time travel scenario or sci-fi or fantasy or something like that is, you know, are, are some of the genres where this could have some potential. I do worry, depending on how these contracts go, right? The ability of smaller actors or, you know, bit players in films, I worry about the pressures that they might be under or for, you know, some of the writers as well, what that sort of flow of, of labor might look like in the context of production. Yeah. Um, but at this point, I'm hopeful. I, I find a lot of what the writers and actors are striking for to be, you know, about issues of, of justice and equity. And I think, you know, it's important to sort of dig in right now into this moment. Um, I think 10 years from now, we're going to see new tools, technologies, perhaps, you know, some regulations, you know, at a much more macro scale around how this technology can be used um, 
but this is something to be seen. Last, last, last question for you. You made a really interesting point in a piece about all of these issues you wrote recently for Wired. And you pointed out that disruption is just one of the constants in movie history. There's always disruption when it comes to movies. Sound coming to movies permanently changed cinema, which had to that point been silent. TV changed how important movies were once TV came about. There's always a moment of big shift that affects movies and then movies kind of find a way to recover. Is there any lesson for Hollywood dealing with this AI shift from those previous moments of big shift in movie and Hollywood entertainment history? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think this is a good point that technology has um, always involved, you know, major shifts and changes within Hollywood. You know, if we look historically about sound or shifts to broadcasting or digital technologies, you know, I think it is always a moment where new forms of creative labor essentially come to the foreground. Others, you know, recede, you know, to, to some extent, right? We have computational artists and engineers and data scientists and people sort of coming into the industry and, you know, assuming creative roles, the role of, say, animators or VFX supervisors becoming more prominent in in, in some respects. But it's also, you know, it doesn't, I think, lead us to the point where we just say that, oh, you know, change is inevitable. Some people are going to be replaced. Some people are going to be added. You know, let's just kind of roll with the ways in which AI might be integrated, you know, into the industry. So I think let's look to the past to ensure that we are receiving compensation for our work and our work is being recognized um, as it you know, has been in the past and as it should be in the present and future. And so I think looking to the past is important, but really digging in in this present moment is absolutely essential. Thanks again to Josh Glick. He studies AI and film at Bard College. And listeners, before I let you go, I want to tell you something. I'm going to be on another Vox podcast. It is called Unexplainable. It is a very good show that I love, and it's all about scientific mysteries and diving into the unknown. For instance, they have an episode all about how dinosaurs actually sounded. Turns out it wasn't Jurassic Park noises. It wasn't. Anywho, on my guest episode of Unexplainable, I play a really fun game called Unexplainable or Not, where I basically guess if a scientific mystery has been solved or has not been solved. It was really fun. Had a great time. I think you'll enjoy it. It drops tomorrow. Check it out. The show is called Unexplainable. All right, Intuit is hosted by me, Sam Sanders. Our show is produced by Janae West, Travis Larchuk, Gabi Grossman, Jelani Carter, Taka Zen, and Oluwakimi Aladesui. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our engineer is Daniel Turek. Our music is composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. And the executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishat Kurwa. Listeners, we are back on Friday with a brand new episode. Until then, be good to yourselves. Talk to you soon. Hold up. 